This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Wake Smith about the new book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Reaching net zero emissions will not be the end of the climate struggle, but only the end of the beginning. Pandora's Toolbox offers readers an accessible and authoritative introduction to both the hopes and hazards of some of humanity's most controversial technologies, which may nevertheless provide the key to saving our world. Wake, welcome to the show. Very kind of you to have me here. So how are you? How was your week? Uh, My week has been uh, productive and relatively quiet. but I'm full of anticipation because tomorrow is a secular holiday for me. It is the semifinals of the Division I men's college lacrosse playoffs, and uh, I will be glued to my television set all afternoon. Ooh, exciting. Who are you rooting for? uh, The team for which I'm rooting is no longer in it, which is Yale, but I guess I'll therefore uh, root for the Ivies that remain in, which are Princeton Mm -hmm. and Cornell. Nice, exciting. Yeah. Uh, All right. So can you tell us what do you do? I am a climate researcher and author and um, professor, um, all based on the or around the theme of climate interventions. I have appointments at both Yale and Harvard, which are also schools from which Uh, I have degrees, so it's fun for me to uh, be reaffiliated with both of those. And how did you get interested in studying climate? I had a career in business in uh, commercial aviation and aviation finance, and I ended my career in private equity related to those. Um, But I got to a point where my mind began to wander from business And uh, as a student, I had studied what I thought was the biggest problem in the world then, which was the Cold War. And I guess I have uh, yet again started to focus on what I think is the world's biggest problem now, which is climate. So I really began as a um, self-taught scholar in this field but have made a lot of uh, uh, progress in the past many years in uh, coming to understand particular facets of it. Um, I I am a pathway pessimist in terms of emission pathways. I'm afraid that I think the world is gonna emit a lot more carbon than it thinks it will, or differently put that it will take much longer to get to net zero than the world is hoping. And so uh, given that I uh, have that pessimism, I'm trying to figure out what we might do about that. And how easy or difficult was it for you to switch uh, these fields? 
pretty difficult. <laughs> it, uh, it took years of uh, study and some luck, um, but I happened upon facets of one small area of this that were utterly unexplored and for which my aviation and finance background turns out to be the perfect background. And so I have been able to make um, a, a lot of progress in the field because I've chosen problems that uh, other people hadn't yet focused upon. And were the mentors that were really supportive along the way? There certainly were. So uh, a professor named Trudy Storelvmo, who was at Yale, is now back in her um, native Norway. And David Keith and Joe Aldi, both at Harvard, um, Dan Esty at Yale, uh, have, have all been very important mentors for me in both uh, pointing me to problems and uh, helping me whenever I got stuck with uh, resources to help figure out answers to the uh, issues I was pursuing. And what would you say to our student listeners and people who might be interested in shifting from one discipline to another? Life is a lot longer than you may think it is, particularly if you're young. Um, and um, your career is more plastic than you might imagine it is, uh, at least if you can remove the constraint of trying to make money. One, one great advantage I have in this is that I'm late in my career. I'm to a point where I'm not trying to uh, support myself while studying climate. I'm simply studying climate uh, uh, without seeking to make money from it. Um, and that's enormously freeing in terms of uh, the ability to follow my instincts and my nose. Um, uh, it would be, I would be in a very different position if I um, were uh, trying to support myself through this. Oh, I love it. I'm so, so interested how you managed to switch uh, from one discipline to another. So do you think it also gives you a bit of a different perspective on the whole issue? It clearly does. I am a former businessman, a former entrepreneur, and I do bring a much more practical um, focus to what I'm studying than I think most of the other folks that are peripherally uh, involved in this. Um, other folks are, by and large, trying to think through how, quote, they should do a thing. And my personal come from is always, no, 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 no. If I were really going to do this, uh, how would I do it? What's the first step I would take and the second and, and so on. And so um, I, I imagine this as sort of building business plans for, for something that I might actually do, um, or at least I think of it that way. I'm not in fact uh, seeking to commence uh, to geoengineer the world, which we'll get into a little bit later, I'm sure. But the uh, academic approach that I bring to it, the, the sort of scholarly approach is to imagine that this is really something not only that we're going to do, but that I'm going to do and uh, it, it try to solve the problem from there. So your latest book is Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. So how did you come to writing it? I began teaching at Yale five years or more ago, uh, but I started teaching uh, venture capital and private equity, which followed sensibly from my uh, private equity late career. And that was certainly a subject that was very popular at Yale. I got 10 times as many students uh, as I could accommodate for that course. Um, but after teaching it for several years, um, I uh, switched my course to uh, climate interventions, a, a very different focus. But by that time I had built up enough uh, teaching uh, pedigree on the one hand and uh, scholarly, uh, uh, you know, background on the other to make the switch and switch to a course that uh, is, insofar as I'm aware, the world's first uh, undergraduate survey course on climate interventions. And climate interventions are essentially all the other things that we will need to do to address the climate problem 
other than decarbonization. And that doesn't mean that we don't need decarbonization. We need it as fast as we can possibly arrange it. But again, I'm fearful that that alone won't be enough to secure an acceptable environment for the people who live on this earth after we do. And so in addition to decarbonization, in addition to getting to net zero as quickly as possible, we need as well to consider other um, uh, interventions in the climate system. And so my course is about what those prospective interventions might be and all of the problems that come with them. The, the first word in the title of my book, Pandora, is meant to signal right up front that I'm not selling this as a bowl of cherries. Uh, uh, this refers, of course, to the, the myth of Pandora's box, which Pandora is told not to open, but she does. And out of the box then uh, leap lots of uh, evils uh, in the world. Um, th the one good thing that derives from Pandora's toolbox though is hope. And so um, it is my hope that uh, firstly, we can avoid the climate problem in the first place, but failing that, that we can somewhere in Pandora's toolbox find tools that will be helpful in dealing with the consequences of climate change. Excellent. So let's dive into the book. And just to bring everybody on the same page. So can you tell us what is the current stage of our global climate? Pretty great as long as we are not looking very far into the future. <laughs> you know, I was just outside earlier today. It was lovely. Um, uh, and um, there is a lot of uh, sort of fear-mongering in respect of climate um, that is well-intentioned, but a little off-base. Um, every uh, hurricane or forest fire or drought or bit of weird weather or flood is sort of conscripted by the climate community um, into becoming a teachable moment to try to um, warn the world about the, the horrors that may ultimately come. And again, I too am trying to scare the world into acting, but I think we need to be uh, candid and note firstly that the weird weather phenomena that we observe today are only partly and only tenuously attributable to climate change. But moreover, um, if the amount of climate damages that we see today were the full quantum of climate damages we will ever see, we would be thrilled with that. The climate now, by and large, across the world is pretty good. People and animals are both happily thriving in it. So the problem is not that the climate, that climate change is already here. It is. It, it's, it's measurably so. It is warmer than it was 100 years ago. But the world has adapted to that warmer climate. We've bought air conditioners and, um, uh, you know, crops uh, have evolved and, and uh, humanity is doing very well in the current climate. Thank you very much. So again, the problem isn't the current climate or current climate damages. The problem is the future climate, um, which we absolutely are changing and we will continue to change. And the magnitude of climate damages in the future, say 100 years from now, will be much greater than they are today. And it's those future climate damages that we really need to worry about, not any current um, manifestations of the climate issue. So what is the discourse on climate among different stakeholders? So for example, scientific community, policymakers, or governments and public? Well, uh, so that's a broad question, of course. In the scientific community, there is absolutely no doubt that climate change is real and caused by human activity and dangerous. There's, in the United States in particular, um, there is the belief that maybe the scientific community is unsettled on this issue. And that's an entirely false belief. There is no more doubt about 
the basics of the climate story than there is about whether smoking causes cancer or whether gravity is real or, you know, it's, it's utterly established scientific fact that we are changing the climate, that humans are doing it, and that it is dangerous. Um, now, dangerous doesn't necessarily mean absolutely, totally horrible. We, it, it may turn, there's a spectrum of outcomes that, you know, probabilistically are possible here. And it may turn out for reasons that we don't now understand that the climate story unfolds in a way that is benign. But the high likelihood is the opposite. The high likelihood is that the um, uh, climate uh, story will unfold in ways that are uh, very problematical. And again, science is crystal clear on that. Um, policymakers in much of the world are also clear on that. This continuing climate denialism is a pretty uniquely American uh, feature. Most of the rest of the world is not uh, confused in this way. But the, the, the big problem that we have is that taking the climate problem seriously from a policy standpoint would bring unwanted uh, consequences to the present. Again, we've got future damages, which is what we really need to worry about. Mm. And to head off those future damages we need to do unpleasant things in the present, and there just isn't much of a political consensus that we want to undertake present sacrifice for future benefit. Um, Europe, uh, Western Europe in particular, Scandinavia uh, and Northern Europe quite particularly, these are places that are on the, the vanguard of being willing to undertake um, present sacrifice for future benefit and local sacrifice for global benefit. But most of the world is not yet prepared to do that. And uh, therefore, we continue mostly to move down the, the, the path that we have been on, where we are continuing to emit more and more greenhouse gases into uh, the atmosphere that will prove problematical for the future. So knowing that these big issues are forthcoming, so how do we know and which specific issues should we be concerned about? Well, the, the, um, the, the, the analogy that I use most often to describe the climate uh, system is that of a bathtub. Uh, we've got a spigot flowing into the bathtub. That's our ongoing flow of uh, greenhouse gases into the climate system, that's our emissions. Um, we've got the bathtub itself that has a level of water in it. And then there's the drain by which greenhouse gases are removed from the climate system. Uh, what informs the climate, what shapes the climate, how the, however the climate is, um, is not the rate of our emissions. That's not what we, uh, that, that's not what informs the climate. Um, the, what informs the climate is the water level in the bathtub. And so if we cut our emissions in half, say, the water level in the bathtub is still rising because the drain for all intents and purposes is clogged. It's not literally clogged, but um, to put some numbers around this, we emit 40 or 50 gigatons of greenhouse gases in CO2 equivalents each year. So forget about the units and let's just call it 50. Uh, the natural drain by which greenhouse gases are removed from the atmosphere operates on a scale of roughly one unit. So if we have 50 gigatons in each year and one unit naturally flowing out of the bathtub every year. The bathtub is filling, filling, filling. And if we did an extraordinarily heroic thing and cut our emissions in half, we've still got 25 in and one out. The bathtub is still filling. 
And so because it's the level of the, the water in the bathtub, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, because it's that that matters, we have to get the spigot all the way to zero. We have to completely eliminate our greenhouse gas emissions. And that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Um, but if, but until such time as we can get to zero or at least net zero, and I'll get to the net part of that in a moment, until we can get to net zero, we keep filling the bathtub, we keep increasing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And those greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are what will shape the future climate. I suppose the scariest thing in all of this that I'm afraid the world doesn't well understand is that because of this uh, very, very slow natural drain by which greenhouse gases are removed from the climate system after we put them there, because that drain operates so slowly, the future will live with whatever level of uh, greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the future will live with that for centuries. It will take many centuries after we reach net zero before the climate would return to something like it used to be. And so um, uh, I, I think broadly people imagine that if and when we get to net zero, the problem is solved. We have, uh, um, you know, beaten climate change. And the answer is no, 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 no. Whenever we get to net zero, whatever temperature it is then, that's the temperature that will obtain for centuries thereafter. And if it's high temperatures that inform high climate damages, that means that the century after net zero will have far more climate damage than the century before net zero. So we're, we're um, creating a very problematical future for the, our successors on this planet if we continue uh, uh, to emit greenhouse gases and take a long time to get to net zero. And yet, I don't see any, any alternative to that. I'm afraid we are going to take a long time to get to net zero and that we therefore will um, impose upon our great-grandchildren uh, enormous climate damages that they will be, uh, it will be extremely difficult for them to ameliorate. Okay, so knowing all of that, what kind of responses do we have uh, to this issue? Well, firstly, we do need to reduce our emissions all the way to zero as quickly as we possibly can. And again, that means finding uh, first and foremost, other forms of energy that don't involve burning fossil carbon. Uh, so we've got to retire coal and retire oil and retire natural gas after that. And yet those three things in combination still supply more than 80% of the world's um, uh, primary energy. And that has been true my entire lifetime and my father's lifetime. And, uh, you know, it's been true since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, basically. So uh, despite the growth of wind and solar power, all renewables, wind, solar, hydro, you can even toss nuclear into that bucket, um, all of the energy types that don't involve fossil fuel um, uh, emissions, um, those are only 20% of our uh, energy system. Wind and solar are less than 5% in combination. And so we've got to uh, replace the entire world's energy infrastructure. And again, that's going to take a long, long time, um, in part because the world population is still growing and the global south, which tends to be poorer, is trying to catch up to the global north in terms of development level, but also therefore in terms of energy consumption. And so, uh, we've got to make this big transition at a time when demand for energy is going to continue to uh, accelerate. 
Um, what that will inevitably require are things like carbon taxes and other financial uh, incentives that steer the world away from highly emissive energy sources and industrial processes and consumption patterns and so on uh, to less uh, emissive ones. So we've got to decarbonize the energy cycle. We've got to change the way we uh, power airplanes and um, uh, long distance uh, surface uh, shipping and trucks and so on. We've got to figure out different ways to make steel and cement. Um, but even if we do all of that, uh, there will still be ongoing emissions. It, some emissions are simply going to be impossible to eliminate. They derive from agriculture. They derive from, again, aviation, which will be very difficult to decarbonize. Even in a future that has uh, that is a low carbon future, there may be some countries or people that just cheat. And, uh, you know, it, it may be difficult to prevent that. So for all sorts of reasons, in order to get to net zero, we're going to have to, in fact, engage in some negative emissions. Um, so that, say, we are, I mean, the path to net zero is something like eliminating 80% of our emissions and then recapturing the other 20% via negative emissions, in other words, sucking carbon out of the climate system, so that we, we're still putting in 20% of our historical emissions, but we're sucking that much carbon out of the atmosphere each year. And that's the way to get to net zero, uh, not absolute zero, um, mostly via reduction, but partially via offsetting our ongoing emissions with negative emissions. And all of, all of that that I've described other than the negative emission part, all of that's just referred to as mitigation or uh, eliminating our uh, carbon emissions. Beyond mitigation, beyond uh, uh, reducing our emissions, we're also going to have to adapt. And so that will be anything from buying another air conditioner to building seawalls across the Verrazano Narrows to uh, protect New York Harbor from uh, storm surges and all sorts of things in between those. Um, but some amount of climate change will occur. We are not going to stop at all. And so in addition to trying to reduce the amount of climate change we ultimately experience by winding down our emissions, we're also going to have to rebuild large parts of the world uh, in order to contend with the climate uh, change that will obtain. But even those two things, mitigation and adaptation, which together are the tools that the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the UN would urge us to um, pursue, Mitigation and adaptation won't be enough to repair the climate if we ruin it to the degree that I'm afraid we are likely to ruin it. And so it's those things beyond mitigation and adaptation that form the basis of Pandora's toolbox, the, the other climate interventions that we may require. All right, so let's peek into that uh, toolbox. And can we start with the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere? How can it be done and what can it uh, help us achieve? Well, let me say, firstly, the reason why I'm afraid we're going to need to do that is that uh, I don't think we are going to achieve the 1.5 or 2C temperature caps that the IPCC would urge upon us. The Paris Agreement, um, they couldn't quite agree to which goal they wanted, so they ended up fudging and having two goals in the Paris Agreement. So definitely no more than 2C, and hopefully uh, uh, not more than 1.5C. And so all of the net zero talk that one hears is around how to limit climate change merely to those levels. We're already at 1.1C, so we're already halfway, more than halfway to the, to the 2C um, cap. But I'm afraid for the reasons I've earlier expressed that we're not going to hit either of those caps. 
I'm afraid we're more nearly in the three C range by the end of this century. And this is Celsius, so it's above five degrees change Fahrenheit. One might imagine, hey, that's no big deal. The temperature where I live goes up and down by far more than that every day in the, in the diurnal cycle, day to night. Um, so what difference would it make if it's three degrees warmer um, Celsius uh, uh, in the future? But to give you a sense of the scale of that, the last time we had temperatures, uh, or, or rather at the peak of the last ice age, the temperature was five or six degrees Celsius cooler than the pre-industrial average. So uh, if five or six degrees cooler can bring a kilometer of ice on top of my head here in New York, um, three degrees warmer is a big deal. Uh, it's not something that you can simply address by virtue of an air conditioner. For starters, it will create tremendous sea level rise, which will change the coastlines of the world. But more problematically, uh, it will change the uh, location of where rain falls all over the world. The world, the, the local climate anywhere one lives in the world is uh, governed by circulations of wind and ocean currents. And those wind and ocean current circulations, the Gulf Stream, for instance, that takes uh, warmth from uh, the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico up to uh, the uh, west coast of Europe, um, circulations such of that, as that may change dramatically in a world that is 3C hotter. And so the distribution on the planet of where agriculture is viable and where it is not may also change dramatically. So it's one thing if we can solve our climate problem by buying another air conditioner. It's entirely another thing if huge swaths of the global south are no longer uh, feasible for agriculture and the hundreds of millions or billions of people that live in those regions need to move elsewhere in order to feed themselves. That's an enormous amount of um, uh, disruption that I worry may well be in our future by the end of this century. So what's Pandora's toolbox gonna do to solve that problem? Uh, broadly, it's two things. Firstly, if we did find ourselves in a 3C um, plus temperature environment by the end of this century, maybe by then we have gotten to net zero. Maybe the damages by then are becoming so manifest and so problematical that people are willing to undertake sacrifice then that they're not willing to undertake now. They are willing to live with higher energy costs and eating less beef and um, you know, driving smaller cars and owning fewer cars and doing all of the things that we would need to do to uh, wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. Maybe by that time, the climate damages are high enough that people are willing to undertake those sacrifices. But on the day that we get to net zero, on January 1st of whatever the net zero year is, the people awakening on that day, on the one hand, are going to be able to celebrate one of the biggest achievements in the history of mankind, bigger than the moon landings. The idea of getting our emissions all the way to net zero um, in the context of a still growing population and growing economy and growing, therefore, demand for energy, that would be, again, perhaps the biggest achievement in the history of mankind. And so on the one hand, people would be able on the dawn of the net zero year to celebrate that great achievement. But again, all that means is that they're stopping the climate problem from getting worse. They've stopped digging the hole, but they're not getting out of the hole by virtue of that. They, they're locked in thereafter to centuries of unacceptably altered climate. So the first thing that I expect those people who are 20 years old in that year and therefore aware of what's going on but have most of their lives ahead of them, what those people are firstly gonna demand is that we start 
fixing the climate that we ruined. And fixing the climate means sucking back out of the atmosphere the uh, greenhouse gases, primarily CO2, that we have been putting into the atmosphere for centuries by that time, um, and burying it back down in the Earth's crust, which ironically is where we got the carbon from when we drilled for oil or mined for natural gas or mined for coal in the first place. But it turns out that the riot of fossil fuel burning that we are still undertaking and have been undertaking, um, we need to take all the CO2 that derived from that fossil fuel burning and recapture it and stuff it back into the ground. Um, trees won't do that. There's not enough land to plant the amount of trees on that we would need to do that. Moreover, uh, the natural fate of a tree is eventually to die and have its carbon leach back into the atmosphere. The natural fate of a forest is flame. Forest fires are a perfectly natural process, um, uh, but that too re returns the carbon to the atmosphere. So forests and other agricultural or, or biological um, processes are very green, attractive window dressing, but they're almost entirely irrelevant to the task of repairing a ruined climate. Um, what we would need are huge industrial machines uh, that look a lot like the you know, fossil fuel powered machinery that got us into this problem, but we would need those machines to essentially vacuum the earth's atmosphere and capture the carbon, uh, purify it, compress it, ship it via pipeline to a storage site and pump it back underground where it uh, came from. That's the, the task of uh, climate repair that we are obligating the next century to undertake. And the cost of that will be absolutely ruinous. The, the cost of that will be roughly uh, the size of the entire fossil fuel industry today. So if you add up the entire oil industry and the entire natural gas industry and the entire coal industry, um, it's that size of an industry in the future that you would require in order to undertake this uh, uh, carbon capture and sequestration task. But again, I think the 20 year old cohort in the net zero year, they will demand that they won't be able to stand uh, that we've got to wait millennia to uh, have the climate return to uh, what it used to be. But even if they are willing in that future year to begin that enormous task of vacuuming the atmosphere uh, and burying the carbon back in the earth's crust, it will probably take them a couple of centuries to achieve that. After all, um, uh, it took us a few centuries to emit all that carbon. And I think it is a roughly equivalent time frame that would be required to remove all of that carbon. So maybe after two or 300 years of carbon capture activity at a huge rate every year, maybe thereafter the climate begins to return to uh, more nearly what it had been. Agriculture once again becomes possible in places that will have desertified in the climate change era. Um, and so that would be another huge human achievement. But waiting a couple of centuries to pay trillions of dollars a year to vacuum the entire atmosphere, that didn't solve the climate damage problem that the people who are 20 years old in the net zero year will have, they will, even if they undertake that climate repair, they will live their entire lives in a much too hot climate. And so solving that problem is what's on the other side of Pandora's toolbox. On the one hand, there's carbon removal, but on the other hand, uh, there is the question of how to cool the earth rapidly and quickly and cheaply during the lifetime of the people who are 20 years old in the net zero year, rather than waiting a couple of centuries. 
So what kind of approaches could those uh, people who were who are 20 uh, in the net zero year uh, undertake to sort of cool it down as rapidly as possible and then maybe allow the carbon capture to work its magic? The uh, ideas that are most commonly discussed today uh, involve reflecting sunlight in one way or another. And um, that um, on a small, small scale is easy, on a planetary sized scale is difficult, but maybe not so, so difficult. The, the, um, the, the, the energy budget of the earth is such that uh, we have energy coming in in the form of sunlight and energy departing in the form of long wave radiation. Basically the sun heats the earth, the earth gets hot by virtue of that and it uh, radiates back outward uh, long wave radiation, which goes out into space and um, causes the earth to be in energy balance. If the uh, earth were getting more sunlight uh, more radiation from the sun in than it was um, uh, pumping out uh, in, in terms of long wave radiation, the earth would heat up. The problem with climate change, the problem with concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is that they act sort of like a blanket on the earth and they prevent the earth from radiating back out uh, 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 energy. And it's a good thing that we have the atmosphere. If we didn't, we would be a snowball earth. So uh, thank you atmosphere. But we've thickened the atmosphere, we've thickened the blanket. And so not as much energy can escape as used to. And that's why the planet is heating up. The planet is getting more sunlight in than it is radiating out right now. And so to compensate for that, first law of thermodynamics, uh, energy in has to equal energy out. And so the earth is heating itself up so it can radiate more energy through the thicker atmosphere and restore radiative balance, but restore it at a higher temperature. So if we can't thin the blanket quickly, that's our um, uh, carbon capture. Um, we can thin it over some centuries, but if we can't thin the blanket quickly, we could potentially operate on the other side of the energy equation, which is to take in a little bit less sunlight. Um, the earth uh, reflects out about 30% of the sunlight that hits it, and it reflects it out because the sunlight bounces off of clouds or ice or snow or sand or other uh, light colored things. Um, so the earth absorbs about 70% of the shortwave radiation sent to it by the sun and reflects out the other 30%. And if we could just find ways to have the earth reflect out one or 2% more of the incoming sunlight, that would be enough to cool the earth um, uh, so as to not have the earth continue to heat up uh, in the way that it's now doing. Th this would be an artificial means of uh, tinkering with the climate system. So uh, carbon capture is climate uh, penicillin. It would actually cure the underlying problem. It would thin uh, the blanket around the earth. It would allow uh, long wave radiation to escape more quickly. It would cool the earth and solve the problem. Uh, reflecting sunlight is simply climate morphine. It uh, deals with a symptom of the climate problem, which is the heat. Um, uh, it doesn't deal with many other symptoms, but it would deal with that symptom, and that's the most problematical symptom. Um, uh, but it's temporary. It, it only uh, works as long as we keep doing it. But again, those 20-year-olds in the net zero year may look forward to their personal future and say, I'm willing to undertake sacrifice for future generations by vacuuming the atmosphere, but I also want the earth to undertake a program to increase its reflectivity, reflect out a little bit more of the sunlight and thereby cool the earth in that way. So how far along the development line of these technologies are we nowadays? 
we are one step farther along than science fiction, <laughs> which is to say not very far. Um, uh, but this 50 years ago, this was science fiction. Today, it's no longer that. There are um, uh, scientists all over the world, of which I'm now one, uh, working on how we might do this, how we might uh, reflect out a little bit of the incoming sunlight. Um, people talk about painting buildings white. That will solve the urban heat island problem a little bit, but that won't solve a planetary scale problem. Uh, people wonder about modifying clouds, and I have just uh, commenced a research project related to that, but I'm not yet clear that, that cloud modifications are a meaningful um, solution to this problem. The solution that we are pretty clear we could do and forms the, the, the largest vein of my personal research uh, is stratosphere aerosol injection or solar geoengineering, whereby we might put into the lower stratosphere uh, reflective aerosol particles that would, again, deflect out a little bit of the incoming sunlight. Um, it wouldn't be something that would be visible to your eye or my eye. Um, uh, but if we could consistently deflect out, say, 1% of the incoming sunlight, uh, that would cool the earth. And we think that we could do that by putting uh, reflective aerosol particles into the lower stratosphere day after day, year after year for decades or, or a century. So what kind of discussions and conversations we still need to have nowadays or, and even in the closest, nearest future? Well, uh, again, all of them. Uh, we're still at a very preliminary stage on this. The amount of experiments in the field that have been done on solar geoengineering, uh, there's a debate as to whether it's one or zero uh, because somebody did one experiment that, that uh, didn't yield a lot of information. We're essentially at zero. This is still uh, purely a theoretical approach uh, that is explored in computer modeling and um, passive experiments, um, but we have done no field testing. Having said all that, uh, I am quite confident that we could do this. I am quite confident that with a decade or two and um, uh, five or $10 billion, I could do it. It's, it's uh, uh, I, I think we understand uh, how one would undertake this. You would do this by building a new fleet of uh, high flying uh, um, crop duster aircraft, basically, that would take uh, chemicals up to the lower stratosphere and disperse them there. Um, the reason we need specialized jets is that we need to get this stuff about twice as high as your Boeing or Airbus airliner flies. And there are essentially no aircraft that fly that high with a big payload. There are a few spy planes that fly that high carrying a pilot and a camera, um, uh, but uh, there aren't the, the, the leaping aerial dump trucks that we would need to implement this. But the reason we don't have those planes is because no one has needed them in the past. If we needed them, we could build them and they would be sufficient then to carry, you know, a fleet of several hundred aircraft would be sufficient to carry enough uh, 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 of these aerosols to the uh, lower stratosphere to do the kind of cooling that we might seek to do. So implementing it is straightforward uh, from an engineering and industrial standpoint. Paying for it is cheap, cheap, cheap. Uh, if we turned over your couch and my couch and shook the cushions out, we'd have the money by which to do this. I'm joking, of course, but this is, this is like one thousandth the cost of decarbonizing the energy cycle or of vacuuming the atmosphere relative to the other kinds of um, uh, climate steps that we are considering. This is extraordinarily cheap. Um, however, uh, it may screw things up in ways that we simply can't predict. The science is way too immature to understand what impact this might have 
on the hydrological cycle, on global circulations, on uh, plant life, because you're going to have uh, a bit more diffuse light as opposed to direct light. Um, there are all manner of things uh, that this big intervention into the global climate system could foul up. And again, we're, we have not even commenced uh, serious experimentation to understand all of that. So, so the fact that it is industrially e easy and financially cheap doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. It doesn't necessarily mean that this cure is better than the disease that we would hope uh, uh, to help uh, treat with it. But um, we're not about to commence doing this. We've got decades uh, in which to research this before we might consider doing it. Uh, so I, I think that um, what we certainly need to do is undertake a uh, very serious and well-funded research effort to determine how, how best to do this, where best to do this, uh, what the potential unintended consequences could be, uh, what aerosol particles we're talking about in the first place, um, but even that scientific research program doesn't solve the hardest problem of, associated with solar geoengineering, which is the governance of it. Um, uh, we're uh, living in a world now where we're seeing World War II-style tank battles happening in Eastern Europe. Um, I sure didn't predict that that would happen. Uh, and it certainly points to how difficult it is to get the world to cooperate with itself. Um, undertaking a global program to turn the global thermostat, um, how we would govern that in a way that the entire world would consider to be procedurally fair and uh, get everybody to the table who needs to uh, be at the table and assure that all voices are heard and understand the distributive impacts of such a program, um, how we could get the informed consent, essentially, of the entire human race to undertake such a thing, and who, by the way, in that planning session is going to speak for nature and its interests, um, we're just talking about enormously difficult governance problems. Um, now, governance problems are um, common in the climate arena. Uh, we have a governance problem right now in terms of our emissions. The Paris Agreement is meant to steer us away from our emissions path, but it's, it's, it's not yet succeeding. Uh, governing carbon removal would be extremely difficult. So uh, solar geoengineering is not unique in the climate space in terms of being associated with wicked governance problems, but it would be a wicked, wicked governance problem indeed. So now reflecting a little bit, then how optimistic are you that we will be able to reach uh, such a um, level of cooperation required on a global scale? I suppose the best news is that by the time this becomes relevant, I plan to be dead. So... <laughs> So, so uh, I'm going to solve my personal problem in that way. Um, th this is far into the future, um, uh, you know, late this century kind of thing. Um, how the world will um, solve those governance problems, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I'm confident that the world will make better governance decisions if it understands how these interventions would work than if it doesn't understand how these interventions would work. So the uh, task for me and other people involved in this today is to uh, continue to try to research uh, what could go well about this and what could go wrong with this and present um, by the end of my time working on this, uh, the world with a much better understanding of how this would work and what uh, the, the remaining issues are around it. Um, 
it, it, it may be that this story is a little bit like the asteroid hitting the Earth story, where the Earth squabbles uh, with itself until such time as it faces a clear common threat. And maybe at that time, uh, we can put aside our differences enough to confront the threat. Um, that's a hope more than it is a prediction, but maybe. That, the latest movie does not show that. They don't look up. <laughs> uh, well, so, so we're going to have to write a different movie. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So um, during your writing process for this book, did you have any discoveries that really surprised you? I'm afraid the discovery that will surprise most people as they approach this is how bad all the options are. Um, uh, starting with uh, the options for mitigation, for reducing our emissions. There is um, optimism on that, uh, on that uh, you know, score, primarily by people who don't understand it well. And so you have lots of people who think that trees or regenerative agriculture or solar or wind or some other climate fad uh, is going to painlessly solve the problem. And, and just item after item, stone after stone that one turns over um, uh, is, 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 is difficult and problematical. Uh, and that's true in respect of how we reduce our emissions. That's also true within Pandora's toolbox. Every prospective idea there on how to deal with the climate problem primarily after net zero has some big problem with it. it simply may not work, or it would work and it would be extremely expensive, or it might work and it might be cheap, but it may foul things up entirely. It, 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 um, it's, a, it's a really unappetizing um, uh, menu. Um, I suppose as well, uh, another thing that surprised me was literally doing the math to try to figure out what a rapid um, uh, decarbonization program would look like economically and financially and realizing we're just not going to do that. Um, the, the, the glib talk that people undertake now about net zero by mid-century, that's an aspiration that we should shoot for, sort of like world peace. It's not a very good prediction. And that too surprised me. It's just if you really try to build a program to get to net zero by 2050, every path you walk down, you realize it's untenable. So really interesting thing that you said earlier as well, that on the individual level, we have to make a change. That means making kind of a sacrifice. But do you think we should reframe it and uh, don't look at it as a kind of giving something up, but rather substituting for something better? That's absolutely the way to deceive people to do what we want them to do. It ain't true. Um, it is, uh, you know, what we need to do is uh, price energy in such a way that makes coal really expensive. Um, people who are reliant upon coal are not going to be happy with that. Uh, and we need to do the same with gasoline. And we need to do the same to some degree with natural gas. Um, we need to put uh, uh, the, 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 the fundamental problem here is that each of us is using the atmosphere as a waste dump for our uh, CO2 emissions and methane and uh, uh, other greenhouse gases as well, but principally CO2. And uh, we are imposing by dumping our CO2 into the atmosphere, we're imposing costs upon the future. And if the future were at the table, the, those people who will be 20 years old in the net zero year, if they were at the table today, they would be screaming their heads off saying, you're exporting to me 
costs that you are getting the benefit of and you are not compensating me for those costs. So you're, you're um, uh, absconding with the benefits and exporting the costs. That's an externality. Um, uh, and the customary way to deal with externalities, people that, uh, phenomena that create costs for others that are not borne by the, the party uh, benefiting from whatever activity we're talking about, you've got to internalize that externality. So in one way or another, we've got to start charging each of us for the future damage that those CO2 emissions will uh, impose upon other people. And if each of us had to uh, pay those uh the costs of uh, th th those CO2 damages, if those were reflected in the economic system, we would emit a lot less. We would do exactly what we are, what, what we should be doing. Um, but again, to pretend that that's not a cost, again, if you and I were, were going to create a secret plan to fool the world, that's exactly what we would say. But the fact of the matter is we need to start charging um, for the cost uh, that, that, that those greenhouse gas emissions will impose upon the future. And that, that won't be popular um, today. Uh, every time there's a vote on that, uh, the current generation shows up and votes no. The future unborn generation, they don't show up. They don't vote. So they never, their, their, their preferences are, are never factored into the decision-making. But the simple fact is we're exporting to those future people a very big problem. Yeah, hopefully we're gonna see a bit of a shift in the perspective because we already have something similar to look back at, for example, on the plastic pollution. And uh, if somebody from today would go back to 1950s, we maybe could have said, don't use so much plastic or don't produce so much unnecessary stuff. <laughs> All, all true, but again, the difference is that the problems with plastic, we ourselves experience. They're on the beach as I walk on the beach. They're, you know, in the in, in the water that uh, the fish uh, uh, eat, uh, swim in, and then then I eat the fish. Um, these climate problems. It, 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 what is so. Uh, unjust about the climate problem is the intergenerational aspect of it. It's that we are um, consuming a resource uh, uh, at the expense of the future and the future has no, has no way to prevent us from doing that. It, 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 the, the, um, the, the, the consequences of our bad action on climate don't accrue to us. They accrue to people who are currently unborn. And that does make it very difficult to solve. Well, this has been a truly eye-opening discussion. So can you tell us what are we currently working on and what will be your next project? I'm continuing to work on uh, projects that take a further step in our imagination about how we might um, undertake the, these programs to reflect sunlight, uh, solar geoengineering. So I've just completed a paper on uh, the altitude at which this should be done. Um, and in particular, uh, there are a lot of climate scientists that suggest we ought to do this as high as 25 kilometers. And my paper basically says you can't get there, stop modeling that high. Uh, I've also just completed a paper on the prospect of commencing solar geoengineering only at the poles, only at the North and South Pole, uh, not literally at the pole, but in the subpolar regions north of 60 degrees north and south, so north of Anchorage, say, and south of Tierra del Fuego. Um, and here, too, I'm not uh, advocating for implementing that. I'm simply trying to understand uh, what the uh, implicate, what such a program would look like. How many aircraft? Where would they fly from? How much material would we need to put into the sky? How much sea level rise in particular would that forestall? Um, and I'm also uh, commencing a 
paper on looking at the prospect of localized geoengineering. Is it possible for a single country to do this, not over the whole globe, but over its uh, own territory directly? So in a variety of ways, I'm simply trying to move the ball forward on understanding what is possible, what isn't possible, and what it would cost to do any of them. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find out more information about your work and also your book? I have a website uh, that can be reached at wakesmith.earth. So W-A-K-E-S-M-I-T-H dot earth. Um, and on that website uh, is information about my book, are all of my research papers, uh, is the press information about my book, um, I expect this interview will be uh, on the website before long. Uh, so that's the place to um, uh, look to learn more about this. Um, and I should say, I'm, I'm not, uh, even with my book, my purpose in it isn't to make money. Again, I'm at a point in my life where that's not my goal. Um, so I don't particularly care to sell the book. If you can steal the book, uh, have at it. Um, but I do seek that people understand uh, the complexities of the climate problem that we are creating for the future, because I do think that if people better understood what we're in fact doing, um, it would change our behavior and we need to change our behavior. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, very kind of you to have me.